Welcome to the Sports and Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the J. Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein. Welcome back to another episode of Sports and Torts. Don't forget to catch up on any episodes that you may have missed at www.sportsandtorts.com and check out our newest series called College Football's Last Call, where we catch up each week with the comings and goings around college football. We have a very special guest for you all today. You might remember our old friend Moses Kim from episode five. Well, we are at his house today and we have one of his friends, which is now one of my new friends, uh, a man by the name of Andrew Choi. I met Andrew just a few days ago, and I realized when I met him that he's somebody that has got to be on this podcast. He is a modern-day Renaissance man. He is a D.C. lawyer. He is a commercial angler, which uh, is fancy for Jewish people like me, fishing. Uh, he is a tennis player. He's a golfer. He's a cook. And any friend of Moses is a friend of mine. So my friend, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. It's a pleasure um, to talk with you. I got to correct a couple things. I'm not a golfer, as you know. <laughs> I thought you played pretty good the other day. Oh, geez. I thought you played pretty good, so don't say yourself that too short. That was the first time I've played in probably four years. Well, that's what I, was I, was I think I was here last time. That's what I was going to say, is that you don't play enough. By the end, you kind of realized that the 3-4 iron was going to be the key, yep. and you were just in play all day long. So, so, so it's all good. Um, we're at Moses' house. Uh, I try to get him to join us and talk with us, but he's up busy cooking and doing I his thing. So maybe he'll come down at some point. I'd love, I'd love that. Um, but yes, and and I am not a commercial angler. I was. You were okay. That's right. Well, That's well, right. Thank, thank you for correcting me. We'll, we'll yeah. get into all that yep. kind of stuff. Yep. Um, but we're 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 drinking uh, French seventy five cocktails. Mm-hmm. Is what we are. Mm-hmm. Um, we also made some strawberry daiquiris. Virgin strawberry daiquiris. My daughter Isabella is here. Yep. She's enjoying them. So this was a recipe that you had, right? It's got some fresh, some fresh picked strawberries and taught Moses how to make them, huh? I guess I was just like, if you have ice in a blender, pretty much everything's fair game, right? So, <laughs> well, she seems to be liking them. Um, we had appetizers. Uh, you went to a, is it a Korean market today? And or we did. We went to a, a, a national chain called H Mart. Okay. Um, because I like to buy whole fish. And specifically farmed salmon, which is um, what you'll find actually on most sushi menus. Um, it's a lot cheaper. I'm, I'm kind of a cheap guy. So because I can butcher it down myself, then I'll just buy the whole fish and then we just cut it down. Well, I'll tell you what our experience was. Me and Dana and Isabella came over and um, the whole fish was was you know, filleted and cut up and, and, and kind of ready. And then you just kind of very meticulously picked off the, the most luxurious pieces and cuts and uh it was sushi grade if not better right i mean it was it was awesome great question like i mean what is this word sushi grade right we throw around these words and this is i mean we'll talk about this but the word sushi grade like what actually does that mean is that actually a regulatory designation that some government entity has given you or is it just like this marketing word like what is sushi grade and or what's sushi quality actually yeah. challenge so, you with so, later? So, so. For, some, for someone like me, 
who uh, is a novice in all this. It's what I can order when I go to a, to a neighborhood sushi restaurant, mm-hmm. right? It's the it's the, the piece of salmon or piece of tuna, all this kind of stuff. And so we just call it sushi grade because to us, that's like the best of the best. Yeah. So that's my definition, which uh-huh. clearly is may or may not be right or wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, I well, I think what we're going to talk about today is that there is no definition. And I think that's what's really problematic in the United States. It's like we don't have any standards. We have a lot of words that we use um, that are proxies for quality. But sushi grade is one of them. Um, but we can, you know, we'll talk about that. Yeah, well, I'm super excited about all this because I consider myself uh, a good eater, right? I'm a good consumer. Um, and, and, and Dana, she's here too. She's laughing. She introduced me to sushi 20 plus years ago and we love it. Um, but I don't know much about it. I'm not a big fisherman. You know, my brother-in-law, Neil Halpern, is a huge, huge fisherman. Um, so I'm excited to learn kind of some of this stuff. And uh, that's why I thought this would be so neat to bring a different angle to this podcast. Because, like I said, you, you're a lawyer, very successful in D.C., but you also have this very interesting side of you as well. So introduce yourself a little bit, background, where you grew up, what you're doing, who you are, those kind of things. Sure, sure. So so um, I'm from North Carolina. I was... Um, Raised in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Go Heels, big basketball fan. I, I, uh, this was um, this was a, a monumental year for us. Um, changed my life. Uh, the the most important and significant year of my entire um, Tar Heel fanhood. Um, that's a digression. Um, I grew up uh, as a lot of Southern kids did bass fishing. Bass fishing, I call the grand staff of fishing. It's like learning to p- play the piano. So you can fish in the treble and you can fish in the bass. If you understand bass fishing, you understand a lot of different styles of fishing, right? It's kind of like playing the piano. You can learn to play the piccolo. You can learn to play the, the bass. Um, bass fishing was uh, sort of my I- I- intro into sport fishing. I always thought I was going to be a tournament angler when I was younger. This is how old were you when you started? My whole life. Uh, I started probably when I was, I don't know, seven or eight. So um, is this Outer Banks, North Carolina or inland? Or? Bass fishing is all freshwater, so it's lakes, stream, uh, some streams, I guess, um, a lot of golf course ponds, um, and just a lot of kids growing up in like the 80s and the 90s um, without, we didn't have video games like we do now, we didn't have... Um, a lot of tech. We didn't have professional sports actually. Where we just had the Tar Heels, and we had a lot of um, fishing opportunities and hunting opportunities, and that was it. And then like no cell phones, not a lot of adult supervision. Um, so it was a great opportunity to kind of explore um, the more cerebral aspects of fishing, like bass fishing. A lot of people think it's this redneck like southern activity. Bass fishing, you cannot be a dummy and actually be a, t- a successful angler. A lot of the work happens off the water. You got to kind of figure out what are the conditions, what is what's the water clarity, what's the depth, what are your what's your, what are your lure selections. A lot of fishing, especially sport fishing, is much more of a cerebral activity than people give it credit for. Um, they think it's just like you go soak bait somewhere and then you get lucky and you bring a fish home. Well, that's why guys like me go and we don't catch anything because we think it's just you drop the hook and you're good yeah, to go. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, you got a time of day where you're going, yep. the bait you're using, all, all this stuff. You got to get dialed in. Exactly. You got to get dialed in. Um, so I grew up like sport fishing my whole life and always, you know, I, I, I moved into fly fishing for a little while. Um, I really enjoy fly fishing. Again, even more, arguably more cerebral than bass fishing. Um, Kind of like, I don't know, 
No offense. I, I think fly fishing is lame as hell now. People love talking about that. I know they I love talking about it every day. On the on the river and so and so, learning to fly fish or catching fly fish. I'm yeah, like, eh. fly fishing is like it's, it's. I always say like bass fish. Bass fishers are the employees, and fly fishers are the employers. Right. Um, but the the actual like art of fly fishing, um, full of merit, full of merit. Um, but a little bit to me at the end, sort of unfulfilling. Um, so I did that. But my whole life, I was always like this sport fisher guy that, um, you know, when you're when you're a recreational angler, you're the value proposition of a single fish is um, how much you can bro out for the camera. The biggest, the best, the picture for Facebook. It's your PBI, right? It's your personal best. So it's like it's like um, I've got these I've got these series of photos, and especially now with the internet, it's like everything's about your PB. Everything's about how much you can bro out about the biggest, baddest fish. But that starts, my son is 10, 11 years old, and his friends are just now starting to fish and uh-huh. doing their thing, and it starts then, right? Yep. It's like, how big was it? Absolutely. You know, do you have a picture of it? And, yep. you know, Graham's is like a little minnow right here. It's, you know, but you're right. I mean, that, that's what matters to people. That's what matters. And, so, and that was my upbringing. I mean, that was what I did. Um, I was very much a child of that era. I was very much a victim of, like, the bill dance and, like, I, like those old Bassmasters weekend shows. Um, I love that stuff. Um, after college, I was a little bit lost. Um, I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do right after college. I was like a liberal arts major. Um, and my mother's side is from Honolulu. So I went back to Honolulu to be with my grandmother and I had this opportunity to work on a commercial tuna boat. And when I was on this tuna boat, I realized, I, I thought I had a big ego. I thought I was pretty cool. I thought I was a great sport fisherman. But when you're on a commercial boat, you get humbled very quickly. It's not about like the games, the gamesmanship of it. It's, and it's not about your PB. It's not how much you can bro out. It's actually how many dollars, your value proposition changes. It's how many dollars per pound can you get? So when you say commercial boat, is it taking people out fishing and showing them, or is it trying to catch enough fish to sell and make Correct, a correct. Yeah, yeah. So there's charter fishing, and then this was a commercial boat where we're actually selling the tuna that we're bringing in. Um, so to this, actually, this, this is a business. This is not going out there for a hobby on the weekends with your, with your friends. Correct, and also to the only American um, uh, tuna market in the country, and it's in Honolulu. And it's not, it wasn't an accident because um, in Honolulu, they have a, a ton of uh, Japanese tourists. They have a big Japanese residential population. Um, and their standards for seafood are much higher. So when I was working on this boat, it was more, I was, I, I, you know, I don't want to overstate this. I was a, I was a deckhand. I wasn't like um, a captain. I was a complete asshole. And I had to do, and I had so to do the process. Like, what, what, what are the responsibilities of a deckhand? Processing. Fish comes over the, over the rail. This fish needs to be very, very quickly euthanized. It cannot suffocate, right? So a lot of, and maybe we'll, maybe this is the intro, right? A lot of people think that, um, forget that fish are very different than their terrestrial counterparts. Fish cannot breathe out of water. So as soon as they come out of water, they start to suffocate. Fish have evolved in a weightless environment. So they come out of water, they hit a hard surface, and they're feeling their body weight for the first time. Fish come out of water, they see direct sunlight, 
have never experienced unfiltered sunlight. So this animal, which is a vertebrate species, is now out of its element, it's on the deck of a boat, it is blinded, it is suffocating, and it is also feeling its own body weight for the first time. And so this thing is flipping out, yeah, right? Yeah, like, what Pun the hell is going on here? And it, be, it enters into this period of hyperactivity where it's actually just so panicked that it starts flop. literally Lucy. flopping, right? So if you, if you let an animal stress itself to death, you will actually ruin the product quality, whether that's a terrestrial animal or an aquatic animal. And, it's, and that's very much true for all vertebrate species. So we don't suffocate cows. Um, we don't drown pigs. We're very, very meticulous with how we handle these animals and actually it's regulated by law. And, and so this, I don't want to fast forward to, to, to the end, but this is the Ikejime. Is that saying that right? Yeah, Ikejime. Ikejime, which that's the method that, that, that you're talking about. Yeah. As opposed to the suffocation. Exactly. Right. So I'm this 21-year-old yeah, exactly. so kid. I think, I'm, I think I'm a bro. I think I'm really cool. You are a bro. I you have are a, really cool. I, I, I have this. The whole I, thing. No, but I had this like ego, this weird ego, right? I'm like, I'm from North Carolina. I'm a bass fisherman. These uh, you know, Hawaii, local Hawaiians, what they're doing. Yeah. Um, they don't have real skills. They're just like, they're just operating winches on these big commer- commercial boats. I have skill, right? I'm a I'm fly fisherman. I can tie my own flies. <laughs> no. <laughs> what matters is what's your dollars per pound. That's what matters. It's not. You quickly learned that was the. Uh, it was very pounds. humbling. It's very humbling. Who like how what like what kind of hashtags? We didn't even have had hashtags back then. But your ego is out. It's just dollars per pound. The value proposition is measured in very different terms. So what we were doing was basically, uh, or what I was being tasked with doing is managing the product quality of an animal that comes over the rail in a way that really, really matters. We're actually talking about a price delta, not like five, six dollars a pound, but 50 to a hundred dollars a pound. Yeah. Um, Mostly in Hawaii, it's like uh, yellowfin tuna, um, mahi. Um, There's some like blue marlin. Um, There's- So what you're saying is once that fish comes on deck, how to treat it in a manner that then maximizes its value to sell. And that's what you realized early on, we can do a better job at this. Right, because the sport fishing world is very catch and release, right? So it's like, I caught this, I took this big picture, I'm a big bro, and I'm gonna release it because I'm a conservationist. Whereas the commercial side is like, um, how much am I gonna get for this? It's very simple. Yeah, it, it, it's it's measured well, it's, in dollars. It's more, it's, I mean, transactional is the wrong word, but it is. It, it, that's the right word. It's that's the perfect word. It's it's transaction. It's how do we get the optimal? How do we optimize the quality so that we can optimize the value? But importantly, when you're in a place like Hawaii, that can actually bear some price. That that can actually bear some price variability because the folks that are going to be buying or eating. Are willing to pay that amount of money for that level of quality so that's what I was being uh, introduced to um, as a as this kid this somewhat arrogant actually a little bit arrogant I'll, I'll cop to that and so what it required was that I had to immediately um, euthanize this fish with a very humble brain spike yeah you're holding it in your left hand unfortunately we're not on video right now yes uh, but you're holding a tool that 
Well, explain the process of what you would do. Yeah, this is a very, very simple tool. And as I was joking earlier, it's the swordsman, not the sword. So um, a lot of a lot of commercial fleets are using like sharpened screwdrivers. And we were using that too. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Um, sharpened screwdrivers are fine. Um, what you're trying to do is actually euthanize the fish as quickly as possible so that it cannot experience As opposed stress. to flopping on deck, suffocating, and taking however long it... Yeah, and the suffocation is really important because suffocation causes three very discrete, um, very predictable consequences. So the first is hormonal, and the second is biochemical, and the third is biophysical. So the hormonal response is that they're actually going to start pumping out and releasing adrenaline and cortisol, just like you would. The biochemical consequence is actually the increase in lactic acid. In other words, the decrease in muscle acidity, or, or muscle, muscle pH, excuse me. Increase in muscle acidity, decrease in muscle pH. They're inverse. And then the do third- Do chemistry on this, on this podcast as well? This is so boring. We cover, we, 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 cover, we cover all bases. Continue, this is <laughs> fascinating. I'm not even like on this podcast, and I'm like, holy crap! I'm gonna really appreciate my sushi more. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you might actually appreciate your meat, any meat more. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because uh, a lot of this stuff is regulated, muscle acidity, all these things by law, except not for fish. Well, that's one of the things that you told me the other day is that the the meat and beef yeah. lobby or yeah. or group, you know, they they're pretty pretty powerful, and pretty strong. They do a good job. Um, but the fish community isn't quite there yet. That's right. Is that, is that right? So that's, that's something right. you're involved in trying to... Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, well, so how should we do this? So, 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 so I'll finish. Oh, yeah. So, I'm, so I'm, if I'm, you, I'm trying to... Yeah, and, and then, yeah, no, no, I'm sorry. There's so many ways to go at There's so many ways hey, to go at you're this. my... Your you're world, dude. <laughs> so then, I'm, I'm learning. Well, so if you... So, okay. So then, so the last one is the biophysical, right? So it, yeah. that's the part where it's stressing out and it's, it, it, it's feeling its body weight. It's starting to exercise like crazy. It's hyperactivity. Its heart rate's going up. Its body temperature is going up. This thing is actually starting to, for lack of a better term, suffer. Um, I don't love using those value judgment terms. I like to use more measurable terms like stress, right? So it's stressing. You can measure stress, adrenaline, cortisol, all these things. Um, and when the fish is stressing, it's actually having an impact, a biochemical impact on the product quality. We know this measurably because we've been studying this stuff in this country since the 1950s the usda has been studying it so we know that there are really serious consequences to stressing out a cow the usda has uh, like decades of data on what happens when you stress a cow when you stress a pig when you stretch stress a chicken we have this word called pse meat it's pale soft exudative meat it's something that's actually regulated by statute and regulation. Um, we, you, you, you may not actually stress an animal out to death. In fact, it must be humanely slaughtered. And that piece of legislation was passed in 1958, and it's called the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act. This is what sort of kicked off my like sort of bizarre. Um, thank you. Oh, look at that. they're going to make it, bring us some drinks. I love it. Yeah. Um, she's like, you need to stop talking. I'm going to slow you down and no, get no, you no, get it. you kind of buzzed. No, we love um, it. That, so I, I don't know if this is like, chrono, like chrono, chrono, chronologically talking about this is more interesting than academically. But 
So I did this little stint on this commercial boat. I was doing this very strange stuff to these fish, and they were fetching like very, very high prices. There were other boats that were coming into the wharf that were not commanding the same prices, but they weren't doing this bizarre thing where you brain spike the fish, bleed this or exsanguinate this fish by sort of hitting its gills while the heart's still beating. And then you run this um, piece of monofilament up its neural canal. Which I see you also have that with To paralyze the fish. Yeah, exactly. And and all of it never quite made a ton of sense to me while I was doing it. I was just sort of following instructions. I'm not sure I really started to appreciate what was happening um, biophysically with these tools at the time. But are these things that were introduced to you by other people in the boat? That yes. They had, that, that the yeah. Methods this is, they were using? Yeah. This, this is, is all a, new to you as a kid. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. It, this is just like standard protocol um, for boats that are basically pr- uh, provi- uh, creating these products for a very limited market. Uh, such a tough experience. I know that I'm soft. I can't do that stuff. I went to law school. Soft in, in what sense? Commercial fishing is so hard. It is... I always joke that like the most conditioned athletes in the world are professional soccer players. I'm going to amend that. I think it's actually commercial anglers. And that's because it's the t- the amount of time you spend, the just the the grind of catching the fish, all that goes along with it. Yeah, I think it's actually exposure. Um, so like the the exposure to the amount of UV that you're hitting that, that you're. Um, that's hitting you um, the pitch and roll on a boat. So you're cresting like 20 foot waves um, for 13 hours at a time. That's gonna, that's gonna hurt. Um, wave slap hurts. There's a lot of shock that goes through Sleeping the boat. Sleeping on a boat is tough. Sleeping on a boat is no fun. Eating on a boat is actually no fun. Yeah. Missing on a boat is no fun. Yeah, so None the, whole, these the, whole, the whole thing is hard. Salt water is no fun. All of these things are, are very taxing on a human body. So, um, it's not a glamorous lifestyle that people might think. Like, gosh, oh, we'd just love to be on a boat fishing. That's right. Yeah, it's not. I mean, commercial fishing can be very, very difficult. It depends. You know, obviously, there's day boats and there's you know longer, longer run boats. It, it's just the exposure is tough. It's hard on the human body. Being out at sea, exposed to the marine elements, is different than being. You know, out in the sun. On so you do this for how long, and then decide law school is the the road? Less than a year. Okay. Um, and it was just like kind of a stint. I went to law school because I'm the child. I'm a faculty brat. Um, my parents were professors at the University of North Carolina. I always sort of knew that at some point I was gonna. I wanted to get a professional degree, um, but I also there's a part of me that's always been. Um, very hands-on. I don't like t- people telling me what to do. I don't like people telling me what to do without explanation. And so, fast forward, I'm, I'm you know, many years into practice um, as so an attorney at, at, at the University of North Carolina. Is that where you met Moses? That's right. Okay. I met. Now, Mo- let's give a two-minute kind of story about you meeting Moses, because everybody listening here knows him. He Moses is the mayor of Atlanta when that's it comes right. to the lawyers in town. So people would love to hear your connection and how you how you came to met. I met the mayor of Atlanta at a bar, which um, I think maybe sums up the. So I met Moses at a bar. Um, we were. We, I was about to enter uh, my first year of law law school. Moses was wrapping up his second. You know, UNC was an interesting place to be in 2000, this is 2003. 
Um, it was a uh, yeah, UNC is a a public university, a public law school. At the time, was still very very conservative. It still is, uh, but it had this strange cast of characters um, that it would that it would pull in from uh, out of state out of state um, students. And Moses is one of them. Um, and you know Moses is a un- uh, one of the most one of the mu- most unique characters in a generation. He's a generational kind of guy. There, there's people that are um, diff- that that are you know can sort of distinguish themselves in an industry or distinguish themselves in I don't know some milieu. Moses is like one of the like a, a once in a generation yeah, kind of guy. Of yeah, no yeah, a very very interesting. Character. And, and y'all have remained friends to the point where you, your wife, who I just met, and your two kids have traveled from D.C. to, yeah, you're, you're, you're staying at his house this weekend. Yeah. And y'all, y'all remained friends this whole time. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, we were fast friends in law school. I, I knew when I first met him, like, this guy is very strange. He is the, he's a, uh, the son of a preacher from Enterprise, Alabama, Korean-American, had a, has a weird uh, accent. For an, for an Asian American, I, I was like, what? I mean, I'm from North Carolina. I I heard that guy once. I was like, okay, this guy is... Uh, this is unique. Very unique. Um, a brilliant a brilliant mind, but also a very humane mind. A very, um, a very uh, uh, intellectual guy. He has this... Um, um, he has this very interesting characteristic... That is hard to replicate um, in any any crowd, and I like I, he he is he's lovable. He's a lovable person, a which is a weird. It's like how many times do you run across lawyers who are lovable? Um, it's like it's like there's plenty of competent lawyers. There's plenty of um, bulldogged ass lawyers. Are there bulldogged ass lovable lawyers? Same time, right? And, and the answer is it's no. It's a unique combination. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's just like such a such a lovable person. He's such a and and he's um, he's like an honest lawyer, which is weird too. I mean, not to dog on our profession, but you know, there's a lot of Dewey Cheatham's in house, right? Yeah, and, and, and he's you, and, and you practiced in D.C. still do. And you practice in, in you know government, so you've seen it all. Right? I practice all over the country. I've seen everything. I I have been in courtrooms everywhere. I, I I do mostly federal federal or actually only federal stuff. Um, so we just jumped to your government work. I kind of you you, North, you know law school in North Carolina, yeah, yeah. which we kind of just you know kind of fast forwarded through. <laughs> I, t- I told you that like an yeah. hour is impossible. I know, we, we'll try I to get all of it, but I like know. you know let, let's uh, let's spend a minute. You know law school in North Carolina, then you finish and you go straight working for the government. Was that your first job? Yeah, out? yeah, yeah. So I went to I went to UN. Um, I graduated. I went straight to the general counsel's office for the Department of Health and Human Services, where I was um, a litigation attorney for the centers Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, and basically I was handling for the most, for the first part of my career, I was mostly dealing with, um, federal district court litigations pertaining to Medicare parts, A and B reimbursement. Um, so I was dealing with a lot of hospital stuff, um, like some home, home health, um, but mostly just reimbursement, right? So it's, what is a, what is a hospital entitled to, um, in, in payment terms? Um, 
when Obama came in um, and passed the ACA, my practice changed a little bit. So I was doing uh, some ACA work. I was defending um, the ACA uh, uh, rules and regulations. Um, around the country, I was doing some Medicaid work, which was interesting, but from the federal side, right? So it's like if a state Medicaid program wants to amend um, what types of things they're covering, does the federal government uh, agree or disagree or approve or disapprove? That was a super interesting. That was an interesting time to be in government, um, and especially in healthcare law during an era of healthcare reform. The Trump administration came in, did very very different things. Um, I'm not here to. Uh, past judgments on um, the politics of it all. I think it's all really academic. I mean, there were things that I saw the Obama administration do that I I needed to take a shower after they did that stuff. There were also things that the Trump administration did that merited a shower as well. Right. Um, So as someone who was on the sort of civilian side, I was working very closely with the Department of Justice. I was a special um, AUSA at the Department of Justice in... in, uh, DC. So I did a, a ton. I, I, I handled a lot of Administrative Procedure Act cases, litigations um, following the exhaustion of administrative benefits. Super, super interesting. Super interesting time to be in DC. Yeah, what's it got like a little... living in DC, working in DC? You got every four, eight years the pendulum's switching, pol- you know, politics-wise, party-wise. Yeah, how how do you kind of manage all of that? I, you know, it's crazy because, so I was very executive branch, right, or executive judicial branch. The legislative branch I never really messed with, right? I don't know anything about what goes on in Capitol Hill. Um, I, I have learned a little bit about what goes on in Capitol Hill. Um, but from, from a legal perspective, the last 10 years in D.C. have been very hard on the city itself. Everything from the protests um, uh, having to do with BLM, protests having to do with um, alt-right, having to do with Antifa, the protests, uh, protests having to do with Trump, having to do with um, abortion. All of that has taken like a pretty heavy toll on the city uh, physically, right? So people are just really tired, especially like D.C. locals. It's hard. It's hard to deal with um, the traffic patterns, right? It, the city's been pretty beat up, and I think actually been a little unfair yeah um, it seems like every day there's something new that this he's got to deal with tired seems like a perfect word yeah right now do you have young children do they feel that or are they too young to kind of understand or see uh i'm i don't know that they're conscious of it but i'm conscious of the fact that i might not be able to take the metro to the museum because there's some road closure because you know somebody's having a protest some crazy thing's doing something yeah. you know or like the the I think DC is like a wonderful place to be. I think in the last few years, it's become a flashpoint. Um, it, it didn't d- didn't deserve it um, for a lot of like cultural clashes that are so dumb um, and unproductive. They're not really advancing the ball anywhere. Right? Yeah, nobody's moving the ball. I think people are are really hopped up on some internet crack. You know, like I think. A lot of this stuff, like this hype on the internet, is it's it's like crack. It's drugs. So people are um, really uh, really nuts, and it's but they use DC as some sort of launch, like uh, platform to like right. you know advance whatever. So the physical infrastructure of DC has been very taxed um, by a lot of that. As a local in DC, 
yeah, it's frustrating because um, it messes up our metros, messes up our, our traffic patterns, it messes up like you know when we can go to the museum. So, um, but you 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 jumped from government work to Greenberg Traurig. Am I saying that that, that yeah, right? Traurig, 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 which, yeah. Is, which is which is one of the the most prestigious, biggest law firms in the country, in the world actually. Yeah. Um, so how's that transition? to go into private practice and then let's talk about how you've been kind of working on some stuff that goes back to the fishing aspect of it all. Yeah. But let, let, let's, let's, let's tie this it all is back. All to such it. a mess. Yeah. Okay. So, so what I do for a living is, um, I deal with, I'm, I'm an administrative lawyer. I'm an administrative litigator and, um, thank you so much. So administrative law is one of these like very strange little, um, un, it's an obscure area of legal practice. It's not if a sexy If someone asked me what it was, I don't know if I could do a good job explaining it. Yeah. It's, it's dark. It's like this weird corner. So what it has to do with is how um, governments may pass regulations or rules or, or laws that regulate an industry. But the government is not... It's the executive agency it's the agency that's going to do it. So because we're a representative democracy, you can't have some policymakers in D.C. start passing laws that actually regulate how hospitals get paid. We're a representative democracy. That can't actually happen because they're not elected. If they're not elected, then they need to actually pass this regulation through a filter. That filter is the Administrative Procedure Act. That Administrative Procedure Act has been around for like almost like 60 years now, 70 years. Um, the Administrative Procedure Act basically dictates the form through which any executive agency, either at a federal or state level, can actually effectuate or promulgate some kind of rule or regulation that has the binding force and effect of law on, like, a business. If you're, regu- if you're, a, if you're an elected official, sure, pass general statutes all day. But if you're, like, some a- agency you know, nerd, some policymaker, the hell you get to actually pass a law, right? It's not your place. It's not your place. You're not elected. So you, it has to pass through this filter. That so what filter, does that filter look like? I mean, what are the steps of the filter? The first step is noticing. The first step is like an announcement, a notice of proposed rulemaking, right? So, so the agency needs to tell the public that they're going to make some, they're, they're about to uh, release a proposed rule. Then they need to release the proposed rule. The rule is basically an a, a, a articulation of what's coming down the pike for you guys. Then the public has to have an opportunity to respond publicly, right? So they submit comments. They have a 60-day, generally a 60-day comment period to submit public comments to weigh in on like what the proposed rule is. And then the agency has this opportunity to issue a final rule. And there's a lot of these procedural requirements as to how the agency must respond to certain comments that came in. And there's also like substantive requirements to whether they're like responding in a fulsome way to what these relevant comments were. When there's like procedural breakdowns or there's substantive breakdowns, then litigators come in. That's when, right? you, come in. That's, that's when you get involved. Uh, so I was on the defense side at one point, and now I'm on the other side. And so this is this very, very like super unsexy part of um, the legal profession that I, I would argue is one of the most important ones. Um, it's it's, a, it's, it's the foundation we, of it all, right? I mean... If, if, if you um, are Exxon, you need to know administrative lawyers. Mm-hmm. If you are um, the biggest healthcare system in the country, you need to know administrative lawyers. Do you need to know tort lawyers? Not really. Um, 
you need to know them, but if you want massive like policy changes, you need to know administrative lawyers because they're the ones who are out there like sort of banging in the in the um, rulemaking part of things. It, it, no one know administrative law is the mo it's possibly the most unsexy. <laughs> I think it's actually the the, the biggest <laughs> losers of all of no, the legal profession. I, no, so so but talk about how you now can use you know, what you want to do with, with the fishing industry exactly, and the way that you want to kind of bring better quality and the better way of handling fish towards, you know, to the market, right. to what you do with your day, with your day job, because it's yep. a perfect fit. Right. And that's, that's what is, is so fascinating about you is that you have this like whole other side that I think now you can use your profession to really exactly. So what administrative law, uh, this is the fundamental premise, right? Is that Congress has passed a statute. The agency needs to interpret that statute. In the seafood world, the question is, who passed the original statute, and what's the agency that's actually going to carry out and effectuate the requirements of the statute? And when you say the seafood world, us going to eat dinner, mm -hmm. or going to the grocery store, the supermarket, mm -hmm. and the food that is provided to us. Mm -hmm. is that, okay. Yep, exactly. So the seafood like being the product. So if we're talking about beef, there is actually a landmark piece of legislation and there's an entire federal agency that is dedicated to maintaining the quality and standards for your beef and pork. It's called the USDA, right? So we have sure, a, we all heard of it. We have a piece of legislation. Yep, chick. So we have like this general piece of legislation, then we have an agency, a federal agency that's designated, and then that federal agency writes a bunch of rules and regs. This is what I do for biopharma, pharma, medical device technology companies, hospitals, all day long. Seafood is crazy because there was no piece of legislation and there's no federal agency. Why, why do you think that is? Okay, I don't know. I, 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 if, you wanna, um, if you wanna push me, I think part of it's cultural. I think part of it's just like incidental. So the cultural part is like seafood has never really been part of the sort of American culinary inheritance since our inception, mm -hmm. right? So the original settlers to this continent were coming over from Western Europe, Northern Europe. They didn't have, they, they did not know our species, right? So they came to this continent, they saw buffalo, and they were like, don't know what that is. Those are weird animals. Exterminate them, bring over cows, okay? Uh, they saw like wild hogs, feral hogs. It, don't know what that is, bring over the Spanish hogs. Exterminate everything here. The stuff that was underwater, they did not touch. So actually a lot of the native species that are here in the United States, have actually, they're actually are Native American species that are still here in a very native and raw form. Um, we didn't have a cuisine that evolved around those species. We took our, our culinary cues from Britain, from maybe Germany to some extent, Italy, at least the northern parts of Italy. So we just didn't have like subtropical, like, so I think there's a cultural component, right? We were just like not, we weren't aligned on the seafood thing. That was like a little bit different. The other problem was that seafood wasn't, um, we didn't have, so the, the, the Humane Slaughter, uh, Humane Methods of Slaughter Act that started in 1958 was largely a response to Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, right. in the 30s. 
that was like kind of about not only um, sort of animal concerns, but also human concerns. We didn't have an industrialized seafood economy in the way that um, we had started to have an industrialized meat processing economy. So seafood just sort of got, it was like the sec, it was like the afterthought. It never really kind of came into prominence. Um, so we didn't have a piece of landmark legislation. That means we didn't have a federal agency. The only federal agency that actually manages anything that has to do with seafood is the FDA, which is strange. So the FDA, their mandate is for safe and effective. So the only thing the FDA does is make sure that your seafood won't kill you. <laughs> so their, their, their uh, uh, scope has to do with um, paras paras parasitic um, risk mitigation. Does that fish present a parasite risk? But it's not actually telling you, is there quality? The USDA has quality. We have eight different shields of beef quality, right? We've got prime, we've got choice, we've got select, we've got DFD, we've got everybody, so many different yeah, Everybody knows all that, yep. right? And everybody, like, you know, Dana mentioned to you earlier that she doesn't really cook fish that much, mm -hmm. doesn't. But I think it all goes what you're saying about culturally is that we've all just kind of grown up with beef was more accessible, it was, mm -hmm. we, we knew more recipes, yeah. we felt more comfortable cooking it. Everybody's like, I don't want to mess up fish. I mean, so it all goes what you're saying. What you were telling me is when you catch a fish and the way you harvest it, not only commands 10x whatever the price, but it's going to last longer, it's going to smell better, it's going to taste better. Yeah. So what, what, like, what are you doing right now in that space, both administratively and also you know, actually catching fish and, and commercializing it? Okay. So, let's, so, so we'll, we'll go back to the legal stuff, right? So in the absence of some kind of actual federal legislation and then therefore a corresponding federal agency that's going to oversee the quality for the American public, that's a problem. That's, that is a massive problem. That has serious economic consequences. We have a $1.65 billion seafood industry in this country, which I think is a tragedy because we have the second most biodiverse marine ecosystem in the world. We're only second to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. We have Alaska, Hawaii, the Virgin Islands, the Gulf of Mexico, New England, the California coast, the Atlantic coast. Tons of we have so much amazing stuff. But it's only a 1.65 billion. So you're saying that number is tragically low. It's like a joke. It's a joke. And it's because our product is biochemically inferior, right? If you have like a live yellowfin tuna swimming off the coast of North Carolina, what's the difference in that live product compared to a live tuna swimming off the coast of Tokyo? As a live animal, there, I mean, there's some obviously seasonal differences, but they're effectively the same, right? They're just live animals. But what's the difference between the dead tuna in North Carolina and the dead tuna in Tokyo? And the answer is they're biochemically different products. And that's where you, that's where you're in play, right? Yes. Okay. So talk. Okay. Say, so how would you change that? How do you change it? The answer is that it's all in the handling. So if one is stressing and suffocating to death, you're going to end up with literally a biochemically inferior product. If one is actually handled with care, then you end up with a product that actually deserves some 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 product price, right? Uh, you begin obviously by playing a little defense against the natural consequences of suffocation. Right? Welfare is a precondition to quality, 
right? The animal cannot experience the stress, so you're going to eliminate the possibility of experiencing the stress. So that you begin that process with a simple brain spike. Uh, the only way we get umami, that flavor, that deep earthy flavor out of any of our animal proteins is by letting it age. We have to let it age. Now we talk about like aged steaks, right? Okay, fine. That's like hyper aging. That's like six weeks. I'm sorry, six months. But by law, we have to age meat two weeks at a minimum, at a minimum, by law. And that's because we have to maintain our national product quality. It has to actually develop flavor. The only way to develop flavor is for this enzyme, this natural enzymatic process to occur, and that's happening at rigor. We never get there with fish because it's decomposing too fast. Is that because the market wants to get it to the restaurant too fast, too quickly? They want We're in a race against time. Because the thing is a fuck, excuse me, the thing is a biochemical time bomb, right? It's actually rotting, it's decomposing too quickly. So we're in this race against time to take this thing that is hot, acidic, full of bacteria. We're trying to rush it to the restaurant to make it fresh. This thing has not had any opportunity to develop in flavor. It hasn't, hasn't had any opportunity to soften in texture. We're just like, eat it green, eat it, eat it, eat it. Because if it, if it starts to rot, it starts to, it, like a, a rotting fish is one of the worst. Like so so let me ask you this then. Let me ask you this. The, the, the fish we ate before we started this podcast. Which oh. had no smell to it That's right. whatsoever. Yep. Well, I mean, we saw the picture. You bought it full. Yep. The whole fish. You walked into the H Mart. And actually, talk about that 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 like encounter with the with the butcher. Yeah, like he, he, you said he wasn't very happy with you. So I know. So like like compare like you walk in like this is what you want you know you're doing it like like walk through walk how that how that went. Okay, so this this could open up a new whole new can of worms. Uh-oh. I'm gonna go there though. <laughs> Aquaculture. Okay. Aquaculture is something that we don't know how to talk about. It is. It has its. Um, proponents and it has its detractors. Aquaculture is in some ways really necessary and in some ways really, really problematic. What do you mean by aquaculture? Aquaculture means farming fish. Um, so the fish that we that you tried tonight is a, a farmed Atlantic salmon. It's probably from Norway or Canada. Judging from how fatty it was, I'm gonna say Canada. Um, it was fantastic, by the way. Yeah, it's great. Um, <laughs> aquaculture is really interesting. So we've uh, a lot of salmon. So Atlantic salmon. There's no um, wild Atlantic salmon. I mean, they exist, but no one's no one's eating. Um, Atlantic salmon as a as a as a product is all farmed. A lot of people think like, oh yeah, you're eating Atlantic salmon, like somebody caught that in the Atlantic. No. 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 <laughs> this came from a farm in Iceland or Canada, Canada or Norway or, or Scotland or something, right? Um, it makes its way to a supermarket in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes. And you know why? Because it was humanely slaughtered at scale. So they're taking a lot of these fish and they're using, in some cases they're using mechanical stunners um, because they have to harvest them at scale. So they're using, um, in some cases, these things called percussive stunners, which are uh, pneumatic. 
So it's like a hammer that will just, so they're putting, they're loading a bunch of fish into a hopper. They're running down some kind of slide. They're popping the fish on the head, which is rendering them senseless. They can't experience the stress. They come up with a, a, ro a rotary saw that comes up and bleeds them. They are not necessarily actually being paralyzed, um, but they are being, at a minimum, just sort of handled in some way that resembles what we do for beef and pork and chicken. Um, that is partly why I feel very confident about the quality, the flesh quality of like what this, what this fish will be. That does not tell me it's safe, right? So what tells me it's safe is, so, okay, so let's say you've got a live fish, or a, a farmed fish. You go to a restaurant, peach, right? Yeah. You take a peach, you, you've got this peach, right? Everything inside this peach, let's just say it's a perfect peach. Everything inside this peach is perfect. As soon as you cut that thing in half, now you're starting to oxidize it. You're exposing each half, all this surface area, to yeast, to bacteria, to sunlight, to oxygen, to water. All this stuff is happening now to all these exposed surfaces. So that's why like in really traditional seafood uh, sushi restaurants, the fish are coming in whole. Because you're not, create, you're not giving them halves of these peaches. You're instead giving them the whole peach, and then it's only being served at the very minute that it needs to, to actually be opened. Right. So you were at Umi last night. Yep. Had a great experience. Wonderful. Met the chef and the whole thing. Like, so, so that was, a, that was a situation where the fish was brought that day, ready to, or do you if, if they're doing it properly, which they are, they're not, they don't care. The freshness actually is overrated. Fresh is fraud, right? Because if it's being, if it's really fresh, it's too green. It needs some time to mature. It cannot mature if it's actually decomposing too quickly. So at a place like Umi or you know other sort of real seafood restaurants, they're bringing in whole fish. That fish is given an opportunity to mature in flavor, and then just before it's served, it's it's then at that point being butchered but it's not being butchered prematurely so what ha we, we we have this preoccupation i think in the united states with uh take this fish out fillet it really quickly then flash freeze it then eat it really quickly right. and oh my god you got to eat it as fresh as as possible hurry 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 um the what, what's being overlooked is that this is a vertebrate species this is exactly like beef now obviously there's much more variability in the species whatever so different fish uh age at different rates a tuna like a 500 pound bluefin tuna oftentimes those fish are being aged for literally six months people think it's really fresh no the thing's six six months old but the six months is necessary because it's building that flavor. It's building that opportunity. So that's what's that's what's happening. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> Umi, I'm glad y'all enjoyed it last night. We've we've been several times. I mean, it's it's a fantastic restaurant. Y'all met the chef. I saw some pictures. Y'all had a, a, a fantastic meal. The you were talking about earlier. Can I say one real quick thing? Yeah, about yeah of course. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about Umi, right, is um, there's a dearth of real Japanese chefs in the United States now. A lot of them are getting siphoned off to China, okay. so because they pay more, and um, and because it's easy to pull the wool over Americans' eyes with seafood, right? It's For sure. easy to kind of 
pass off some BS. Um, Umi's interesting. That chef is really interesting. He's doing some pretty exciting stuff over there. <laughs> There's this fish. I don't, I don't, I, I'm not trying to be obnoxious when I say this, but there's stuff over there at Umi that's um, really conventional. Hamachi, uh, tuna, under, uh, like tuna, like un, undescribed tuna, right? Um, salmon, right? But there's this thing that they have over there called kinmadai. Kinmadai is like, what the hell is that? <laughs> that is a very, very rare fish. Yeah. That's an alfonsino. We call it an alfonsino here. It's a black-throated, black-throated uh, perch. There's not a lot of places in the U.S. that have that. There's not a lot of places in the U.S. or not a lot of chefs that are from Japan that are going to actually know what the hell that fish is. That's not a fish that you... That's not a fish that um, your average... Even your average sushi lover really understands black-throated sea perch or Alfonsino. You can have that in Atlanta, which is kind of wild. Um, that is a very, very unique fish. People don't know what it is. It's keen madai. It's not madai. You know, they have madai snapper. It's awesome, but I think umi is really interesting because yeah, I mean they're they're they've probably, got a real real stuff there. Yeah, they're probably the top of the market. I mean, they're they're probably the best one here in town. Um, I think by far, actually, mm -hmm. you know, so that's cool. So I, you, you were talking about the, the right way to kill a fish, I think is a way that it, it reads in terms of the YouTube video that, that I've watched from you, um, which has seven plus million views. Yeah, it's, it's a little ridiculous. So I'm, apparently I'm, your video. I'm viral. Yeah, it's, it's Vox's video. Yeah, but but that's it's that it's, it's his mug. It's, it's your video. It's his video. It's a, I'm always fascinated about things that go viral and they get that kind of hits and that kind of views. Like as you're as you're you're filming it, you're explaining what it is, right? And then you're watching it just kind of catch traction. <laughs> like how? What, what is that like? I mean, each day you're looking at the hits and just rolls, rolls, rolls. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I can barely work my iPhone. Um, so <laughs> viral things are kind of strange to me. Um, I think it was a moment where people were starting to really question the quality of their seafood in the United States. Seafood, on the other hand, I think people have been wondering about for a long time, and that video was giving folks some context for like how to understand like how seafood are it, like en masse kind of being perceived and then how they're being harvested here in the United States. So are you refreshing your iPhone like 100,000? 300,000, 500,000, well, a million, <laughs> 3 million. You would be, I know for sure. It, I would be. It dropped in 2019, right? Oh, so, wow. Yeah, two years, but still. I mean. Yeah, it, it was a little nuts because I was like getting, I, I was getting calls and emails from like a lot of random people that like I didn't know. Um, and then people that I did know that were like, what are you, wait, I think I saw you in a, these are like, well, you know, every, opposing, every, opposing counsel. You. Seven million people yeah, saw you. Yeah, it was like, like there was a judge that reached out to me from, um, from Oklahoma that was like, a, 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 dish, a federal district court judge that was like, I think I saw you in a video. That's cool. And then sell it to Tokyo. You mentioned North Stars and I ask you like, so if we sat down in five years from now, three years from now, or seven years from now, what do you, like, what do you think? is gonna be a successful kind of moving this down the road? Oh man, great question. I, I would like to see um, American restaurants around the country, no matter where they are, 
no matter what. So Atlanta is a great example. People say to me, well, Atlanta doesn't have good seafood because it's so inland. And I'm like, well, that's crazy. Because um, why does why does quality re- uh, re- require proximity? Uh, are there cows being raised in Atlanta, uh, or, or like wh- wh- why is that right? So there's something about seafood that's really different that I want. I'm hoping that in the next five years is is going to be uh, people are going to have a different frame of mind about it. Atlanta should have access to the highest quality seafood in the world. No different than, say, New York City. Like, why is, like, if New York can fly in stuff from Japan or fly in stuff from Australia or New Zealand or Hawaii, uh, why can't Atlanta? Should be able to. No reason, right? They should. I'm trying to actually open up the American commercial market for uh, either sale or um, or trade here in the United States or abroad. So if you have Snowy Grouper from Jacksonville, Florida, and um, you're gonna get you're gonna yield six dollars a pound in Atlanta, but you're gonna yield sixty in Paris. Don't sell to Atlanta. Right. I'm not gonna lie. Like, go <laughs> sell it to Paris. Paris. Yeah, Paris. exactly. And and I don't think I also think like local, like eating local, especially seafood, is really overrated. It's like I, I don't care. I just want the best. Yeah. So sure. if it's the best, it's the best, right? Well, let's do this. Let's let's come back in three years. We'll we'll, we'll come back to Moses' house and we'll see where we're at five years. I'd love it. Um, Dude, this has been great. I've learned so much. This is so fascinating. I don't want to keep you from this feast that's that's upstairs any no longer worries. because uh, I mean I, I saw what's being cooked. But I do have I do have a, two quick tennis questions because tennis questions. you're a college tennis you're a college tennis player. Yes. I love tennis, so I have two questions: Agassi or Sampras? Sampras. Arfed or Rafa? Oh man, uh, forever Arfed. Um, recently, I think Rafa has matured in a way that I was not anticipating and is such a class act. Such a class act. I mean, he was such a punk at the beginning. I, I'm a one-handed backhander. Um, Rafa was, ev- I'm mean, sorry, um, Roger was like everything to me. Yep. It was like classic versus new school. It's P- Sampras and Agassi, right? Yep. That, yep. That, that, um, that dialogue... Um, so I, I, I'm very biased towards the one-handed backhander folks. Rafa, um, oh my God, I, I, I love him. So classy. So I'm an Agassi guy, always have been. Okay. Um, I had the blue jeans with the pink, you yeah, know, challenge courts, challenge courts, the jorts, all of the it. jorts with the hot pink, all of it, all <laughs> let's of it. call it what it was, all of it. Um, love Agassi. I like Sampras too. Love Agassi. Always been an R-fed guy, but I'm with you. Like Rafa in these last couple of years, I mean, there's nothing else to like about him. He is class act. Every tournament he's in, he speaks how many languages now? I mean, if he's in France, he's speaking French. Even you know, and and you know, he's whatever he needs to speak. Um, what about Djokovic though? Like Djokovic isn't. I mean, he's going to end up probably with just as many, if not more, Grand Slams. But no one puts him in that in that same category, do they? I think Djokovic is always going to be stained by his earlier years of like tanking matches, right? He's always 
he's not as lovable or likable as um i mean rafa had an opportunity to actually turn people against him he didn't take that path he took the path of being a class act um of being a really um complimentary rival to to um federer but in a way that was just like it was long term right he knew that there was going to be this was a long term thing yeah. those are that's what champions do right they see the long term it's amazing that he is still winning championships too all this time, all this time later oh god I, it makes me want to cry like the the discourse over the years between rafa and K- and uh, roger federer they started off like just kind of two teenage punks rafa uh Rafa was a little bit more fiery and, you know, wore like clam diggers and stuff. Like, it was, it was like Agassi, right? It was like a little bit ridiculous. And Federer was always like, you know, the Rod Laver, Sampras gentleman on court. And so it was this, it was this perfect, it was this perfect um, match, uh, uh, face off between like classic and contemporary classic, just like Sampras and Agassi. The beautiful thing about, I think what happened with Rafa was that he, he could have been a punk. He could have been such a punk and he matured into this class act that I don't, you know, Djokovic never figured out how to, he never figured out how to thread that needle. Um, he tanked a bunch of matches early in his career that really soured a lot of people on him. The Joker is an amazing talent. He will be forgotten in a way that Rafa and um, Federer will not be, but just on that emotional. Which level. is wild because he very well might end up with more Grand Slams than everybody. Mm-hmm. Which, which is hands which, down. No, which, which is wild for sure. Um, and and I think that if you asked ten tennis players, a hundred common people, they'd be like. Federer, Rafa, Agassi, Sampras, and they would never mention Djokovic. It's that's wild. Right. It's wild. It's 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 crazy. Oh my God! It's so crazy. I mean, like that's a great that's a great way to think about it because he, no one wants to talk about him, but everyone has to acknowledge him, right? It's not it's not romantical. So good, so good, Andrew. This was so much fun, man. Yeah, I'm, uh, thank you. Thank you for spending this time away from your family with me and. Everybody that's listening, because this is this is different than what we've done before on the podcast in terms of subject matter. But you you thread sort of thread needles. You thread lots of needles. Check lots of boxes. And uh, I just appreciate it, man. So yeah, no, this was a real pleasure. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Everybody who's listening, I know y'all enjoyed this one. And uh, as we always say, until next time, keep chopping.